Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to the sixth chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, page 631 in the Church Bibles. We are in our second part of Daniel chapter 6. Lord willing, we're going to be able to finish this out. And we're going to take a break from Daniel into the beginning of the year. And it's actually perfect because chapter 6 ends the narrative section of Daniel. Chapter 7 will begin the more prophetic part of Daniel. So we will close out this year in Daniel 6 here. And then all spared and Lord willing in the beginning of the year in January. We'll pick up in chapter 7. So just keep that in mind. I'm just going to read a few verses beginning in verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together, please. Father, will you please help us now as we look together to the Bible? We want to understand it, we want to believe it, and we want to frame our lives increasingly under its truth. And for this to take place, we are entirely dependent upon you. So we now, God, look away from ourselves, we look away from any distractions, and we look to you, God, for everything. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. In J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he has a chapter entitled, People Who Know Their God. And under the section, Evidence of Knowing God, right? That's, that's a good question because if you know God, if you communion, commune with God, clearly something must happen to you. He writes, we have said that when people know God, losses and crosses cease to matter to them because what they have gained simply banishes these things from their mind. And then he asked this question, what effect does knowledge of God have on a person? And again, because we know God, we are in relationship with God, that has to mean something. It's not dead. So he answers using Daniel as one of his examples, and he says, People who know their God, number one, have great energy for God. People who know the greatness and the goodness and transcendent worth of God have great energy from God. And then he quotes from Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, that says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and do great exploits. In other words, people who know their God cannot rest while God is being dishonored. The fundamental sin of the human race is our refusal to honor God as God. And people who know their God, they cannot live with this. And the first point of their zeal often begins with prayer. And of course, we find that in Daniel in chapter 6, and we'll find it later in chapter 9. 
Second thing he says, people who know their God have great thoughts about God. They never limit God by their own human limits and their own human ability and their own limitations of their human vision. They know that everything comes by God and through God's hand. They know God is sovereign and they know that God can do incredible things as he executes his holy will. Third thing he says, people who know their God show great boldness for God. And of course, Daniel, here in these stories, he sticks his neck out, as it were, again and again. He counted the cost. He measured the risk. Unaware always of the outcome, still grounded in God's truth, Daniel holds the line. And his boldness, listen carefully, his boldness is marked by humility and calmness. And in that, God was magnificently glorified. The whole known world at the time of Daniel received two letters from their king. Chapter 4, a letter to the world. Chapter 6, a letter to the world telling them of the greatness of Daniel's God. You understand that? Because Daniel was really good at what he did and he was really faithful in what he did, the whole world knew about Daniel's God. Not so much about Daniel, but about Daniel's God. Finally, People who know their God have great contentment in God. What a word contentment is, right? In a world like ours. And so throughout these these stories, Daniel's at peace. Chapter 1, food issues and the threats of saying no to the king's diet plan, peace. Chapter 2, dream and and a threat of death, peace. Writing on the wall, chapter 5, enemy takeover, peace. Lion's den, chapter 6, maybe death, for Daniel. Peace. In living and in dying, Daniel knew he belonged to the Lord. And that was enough for Daniel. And therefore, Daniel was content. Now, loved ones, please listen carefully. God calls some in adversity to bring glory to his name by dying. If you paid attention to these things, Helen Rosevere, at 91 years of age, she died on Wednesday of this week. She was the woman who served the Congo and was raped in the Congo, came back to uh, Britain to heal, and she went, as soon as she was able, she went right back into the Congo to do God's work to some of the very people who raped her. And uh, God calls some in adversity to bring glory to his name by dying, yes. However, God calls some in adversity to bring glory to his name by living. And here in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel will live. And Daniel will answer the question for us. We noted this last time. Will full involvement in a pagan culture compromise our faith? He answers that question with a resounding no. So Daniel would say, don't try to hide yourselves. Don't try to hide your kids. Integrate into the culture. Connect. Serve. Uh, Potatoes need salt. The dark world needs light. Make much of God. How? Well, here's some pretty simple ways. By being an excellent employee, by being an excellent employer, by being an excellent citizen, by being a volunteer, an excellent volunteer, be an excellent friend, an excellent student, an excellent teacher. Give glory to God in these simple ways. Now, because Daniel has. Now, we made it clear last time that this decree wasn't driven by truth, but rather it was driven by jealousy. 
Daniel was hated and he was conspired against, not because Daniel was bad, but because he was good. In fact, if your Bible's open, verse 4, he was very, very good. He was so good, in fact, and they, when they went to look for uh, the proverbial skeletons in the, in the closet, they couldn't find an, any with Daniel. I read this week in the New York Times, in light of the president's elect's duty to create a cabinet, and you know this, most of those individuals will have to uh, stand before the Senate. And a senior senator of the opposing party, when asked the question about how difficult a process this could be, this is what he said, listen carefully. Well, it will depend on how many skeletons in their closet, listen, skeletons in their closet we want to bring out. He's he's saying they're there and we know they're there. We're just not sure how many we want to bring to light. Now that's not an easy process to go through. But I suspect if Daniel went through that, he would be just fine. So, What we have here then in Daniel's colleagues and in their jealousy is a trace of what Paul the Apostle refers to in 2 Thessalonians as the mystery of lawlessness. Now pay attention to this because this is going to run through most of our sermon. So this 30-day decree of no one can pray to the king or pray to God, excuse me, but but to the king. No one can pray to God but only to the king. That 30-day decree that the king signed into law, it was not rooted in natural law. And it was not rooted in the law of Daniel's God, the ultimate lawgiver. But that was a law which came only from those 122 officials who want to murder Daniel. And murder is lawlessness. In other words, this was a law which directly opposed, at the very least, natural law. Laws in our very core which tells us that murder is wrong. And this was a law which was activated to destroy one single man. In other words, total subjectivity here. Total self-centered. Hence, Daniel's defiance. And I can't help, and I'm sure most of you think this way, you can't help but to think of Jesus here. The Sanhedrin, their only intent was to rid themselves of one single man, Jesus. So they lie to the Roman authorities. And like Daniel, Jesus is condemned not by truth, but by trickery and by jealousy. So we said last time Daniel was distinguished and he, of course, was despised. Third point, you can see this in our worship folder, Daniel was disciplined, as in self-discipline. Now, in thinking about Daniel's ability to last through at least three pagan administrations and to advance, get promoted in each one of them, clearly Daniel not only was a good worker, but he was a good thinker. And he was able to think things through. And I suspect because of this, he would be tempted to think something like this in light of this prayer's decree. So he has to make this decision, will he or won't he pray? First, let's just be practical about this. Daniel could have said something like this. Jeepers, it's only 30 days. I mean, I'm pushing 80. I've been praying since I was a kid. It's only 30 days. Surely I've got enough credit built up in praying, so I'm probably due for a rest. Or he could have said, you know, it doesn't really matter where you pray, so I'll change my location. I'll change my my schedule. No one has to know. I'll keep praying. Do it in secret. Everything will be fine. However, listen carefully. 
if Daniel's commitment to prayer would have been infrequent, so this was just a, a sporadic discipline. In fact, the only time that Daniel really prayed was when things were bad, when things were good. He kind of shut the whole thing down because things were good. But of course, when things were bad, that's when he'll really pray. If, if that was Daniel, then his colleagues would have never counted on the fact that as soon as they create this law, that they could catch Daniel in the act. Because it was the very disciplined pattern of prayer in Daniel's life, faithful prayer, that made it possible for his colleagues to make the law and to be confident that when the time came, they could just catch him in the act. That's practically. Now let's think historically because we need to. This was the first year of Darius's reign. And according to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had a copy of the book of Jeremiah. In reading Jeremiah, Daniel was convinced that the day of restoration for God's people was close at hand. In other words, that 70-year cycle of punishment, it was coming to an end. So since that exile was ending, Daniel had to ask himself the question, does it make sense for me just to, to, to lose my life just for 30 days of prayer? I mean, from purely human reasoning, Daniel's sacrifice would seem absolutely pointless. I mean, he's, he's been living for this day to see his people restored. And now he was going to have to die just for a mere 30 days of no praying to God. But somewhere in Daniel's core, he said, I am going to keep praying. I need to do this. The world needs me to do this. This is my meat. This is my drink. I'm going to pray. So ask yourself this question, please. Somewhere in the course of this day, if we stop praying individually or as a church for 30 days, would there be any difference in our life, in our context, in our world at all? If we didn't pray for 30 days, if we just shut it down, 30 days, would there be a difference? I know how hard it is to pray as a habit, and I am not naive enough to think that there could be some of us here this morning who haven't really prayed in the past 30 days, the past three months, the past six months. And Daniel could help us. Because apparently to Daniel, prayer was so vital, it's worth dying for. Practically, historically, personally. So let me ask you another question. Can you imagine if you couldn't speak to your wife or your husband for 30 days? Could you imagine if you couldn't speak to your kids, your grandkids for 30 days? Your church family for 30 days. If I couldn't speak to my wife for 30 days, I couldn't stand it. Now, after 25 years of marriage, she might need a break. I don't need a break. So can you imagine 30 days of not communing at all with God? So isn't Daniel's discipline very challenging? It's challenging to me. Okay. So the men come in. These are the 122 officials. Verse 12. They have all their ducks in a row. Talk to the king. 
After catching Daniel, O king, didn't you sign the law and so on? We know how this goes. He replies, well, why, yes, I did. Yes, I did. And then they just lower the boom. Verse 13. O king, Daniel's praying. He pays no attention to your decree. He still prays three times a day. Now, it's important to remember, we're going to get to this in a moment. Daniel's not being defiant here. He's not being a rebel rouser. He's not trying to get attention to his cause. And the reason why we know this is at the end of verse 10, you see this, three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he did before, self-discipline. This was his pattern. We also know that he was very loyal to the empire. He was loyal to the king, and the king knows both. You see this in verse 14, because when the king heard about this, about Daniel, he was in great distressed. Literally, it reads like this. The king, he felt like he was bad. (laughs) You see, he knew that he had done the wrong thing. Oh, king, you are so great. We're going to give you 30 days of utter glory, 30 days of being treated like a god, and he falls right into the trap. And loved ones, Christians, we will too. Anytime we want total control of our existence, anytime we want the throne, anytime we want to function under our own sets of laws and principles instead of God's laws, anytime we want to be treated like we're all that matters and we refuse to acknowledge God has laws and has principles that we must live under, that God has assignments to us for us to perform worship and work and witness. Anytime we refuse these things, we will fall right into the same trap that the king did. And personally, I feel sorry for the king because it's very, very hard to lead people. And it's even harder when you have hurt someone as good as Daniel was. Okay, so let's move on now. Let's think for a moment about Daniel's place of prayer and his posture. And we're going to do this under two headings. We're going to think of redemptive history and we're going to think of architectural history. Now, this is very important because I don't want us to think, okay, all right, you haven't been praying. And so you're going to go, okay, if, I, if I'm really, really, really going to pray, then I'm going to build an upstairs room or I'm going to go to my attic and I'm going to figure out which way Jerusalem is and then I'm going to put a window in if there's no window and then I'm going to get down on my knees three times a day and boy, oh boy, my prayers are going to be electric. <laughs> Don't think that way. In fact, part of the New Testament mandate is to what? Pray three times a day or is it to pray without ceasing? It's to pray without ceasing. So think under the heading of redemptive history. What Daniel was doing by praying facing Jerusalem was he was expressing the fact that before Christ, because this was some 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, before Christ, the Messiah, in Jerusalem, you had the dwelling place of God. In Jerusalem, you had the embodiment of truth, the embodiment of salvation. In reality, Jerusalem was a type of Jesus Christ. It was a place where truth was, where God was, where salvation was. And that's why John chapter 4 is so important because remember the story of the woman at the well. This is John chapter 4 around verse 20. And she said to Jesus, Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where you can really, really worship God. Right? In our day, you go to a certain place or you do a certain thing and you say, oh, I feel real close to God or I really feel his presence. 
You just want to be careful there. Because Jesus responded to all that hoo-ha with, no, 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 those days are over. There are no more holy cities. There's no more holy places. But there are holy people. And his people are people whom Christ dwells in. He tabernacles in. And if this is us, if we are Christians, then we're the new temple. We're the new dwelling place of God. God is not just in Jerusalem. God is not in the temple. God is not here. God is in his people. And as God's people gather together in churches, we give a visible witness to the invisible God. Now that's redemptive history. It's important. Now let's think a bit about architectural history. Again, When he prays in the place he prays, he's not being a troublemaker. He's not trying to be difficult or purposely rub people the wrong way, right? Because you get a children's book, and most children's book, when it has Daniel praying, that you have him kneeling, and he has this huge window, and you can see the whole city there, and there's people looking at Daniel. That is completely wrong. Uh, Daniel was not, uh, what is it, T-bowing or whatever that stuff is. This is not that. Windows then... And to some extent now in the east, we're mostly high up in the wall line of a home or a building. So there was nothing there except slats to catch the wind so there could be better circulation in the home. Therefore, the picture that you should have in your mind is not Daniel's public display of devotion. Rather, it is a picture of personal intrusion by his colleagues into his life. Now get this. This is not a public display of Daniel's devotion. This is not Daniel going, oh yeah, just try to stop me. This is an intrusion by Daniel's colleagues. In other words, they have to spy on him. They got to, they got to, if you would, break some privacy laws to get into Daniel's context so they can figure out that he's praying. That's important, isn't it? Because I'm sure if it hasn't happened yet, someone will try to take Daniel 6 and they'll try to sell us stuff. So they'll sell us a big huge mural of the city of Jerusalem and we'll put that on our wall and they'll tell us if you really, really want to pray. 1995, buy the picture of Jerusalem. There you go. There you go. And when we think about Daniel's prayer posture, there is no set posture given to us in the Bible which is the one that God really, really likes. In the Bible, hands are spread out, raised, Head is bowed. In the Bible, they're standing, they're kneeling, head to the ground, prostrate. Elijah, face to the knees when he's praying. Uh, Elijah, the beating of his chest in repentance. Just like the tax collector in Luke 18. That's how they were praying. So, I hate to do this to you, (laughs) but a long time ago, I came across this little poem about prayer. And this is what it says. The proper way for a man to pray, says Deacon Lemuel Keys. And the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say, the way to pray, says Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped and unturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing downward toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well. Head first, said Pastor Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up, 
my head a pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there. Best prayer I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed was a standing on my head. <laughs> Sometimes our prayers refresh us and they inspire us. Sometimes our prayers bring no immediate gratification at all. Regardless, we have in Daniel one who has a fixed point in his life, which, which maintains the reality that he needs to pray many times throughout his day. And this is so important, especially for those of us who always find our need of some immediate gratification, some emotional experience, some sense of blessing and fulfillment or adoration. And and if we don't have that stuff or we don't feel that stuff, then something must have been wrong with our prayers. Well, why would we think that way? In fact, loved ones, any time we go into anything of God, asking ourselves as a first question, what am I going to get out of this? We just told on ourselves. That's what pagans do. And we are wrong. When did we become the issue? Are we the issue or is God the issue? Are we the issue or is God and his glory the issue? When we come into God's presence and and are disappointed because, you know, we're not feeling it, whatever that is, we need to ask ourselves the question, am I hungry enough in the things of God Because God always has something for me to eat. Always. He can't help himself. Daniel was distinguished. He was despised. He was disciplined. And he was in the den. Verse 14b. The king is trapped. He couldn't do a thing. He tried. He failed. It was the law. And once again, another pagan king is just loving on Daniel. Just loving on Daniel. Verse 16 The law stands. And Daniel is thrown into the den of lions. Ask yourself the question, why lions? Why lions, right? My wife showed me a video Thursday morning of a kangaroo just beating down on a person. And I am like totally afraid of kangaroos. They just like, oh, they creep me out. I'm the little that and even the pouch thing. I don't even really get, but that's, that's me. Okay, so, by the way, at the end of the first sermon, someone said you should watch this movie about kangaroos. And I was like, ah, (laughs) no. Okay, why lions? Well, lions in that day was sport for the royal and wealthy classes. And so, as a sign of prestige, it would not be uncommon for them to have a pit dug with a number of lions in them. And so we're told that Daniel was thrown in the den. And you see this in verse 16b. He was thrown in the den with a blessing. Isn't that true? The king says, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. And Daniel says, thanks a lot. But it's, it's a horrible thought, right? Daniel, who's been good and he's been faithful all his life. He's pushing 80. Loyal to the empire. Loyal to the king. But because his peers hate him. This is it. Because they're jealous of him. That's it. He's dropped like butchered meat in the den of lions. But there's more. 
Because this is what the evil one does. Make no mistake about this. The evil one attempts to destroy every trace of the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. The evil one attempts to destroy every trace of the kingdom of God. He doesn't give a hoot if we're stagnant. But when we advance, when we're making much of God by our good behavior and our good words, here he comes like a, Peter says, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And as you look at verse 17, is your mind going forward to Jesus? And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. In other words, it's over, it's finished. As soon as we do that, as soon as we do that, he's done. Matthew's gospel, uh, chapters 26 and 27 the almost the exact same end. The authorities, um, at the request of the Pharisees, they put put a seal and put some bodies there because we don't want the disciples filling around with the grave. Seal the stone and set a guard. That's what they said. It's all done. There's not going to be any of this three days and he's going to rise stuff. It is done. The guys, when their shift is over, it's like, okay, you want barbecue? Let's have barbecue because that guy in there is toast. It's over. Do you know the hymn? Vainly they watched his bed, Jesus, my Savior. Vainly they sealed the dead, Jesus, my Lord. And then the refrain, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. That's Jesus and that's Daniel. Which is why the kingdom of darkness wanted Daniel gone. Seal him away. Be done with him. Get rid of the kingdom of God. Get rid of any sign of God, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Verse 18. Evening comes. Evening comes and no one's eating. The king's not eating. The lions aren't eating. Daniel's probably not eating. Verse 19. First light of dawn. The king gets up and the Bible says that he cries out in a tone of anguish. I wondered all week. As, as the king of the world, because that's who he is. Was this the first time he ever cried out in that way? Verse 20, Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God whom you serve continually? Has he been able to rescue you from the lions? I mean, that's anguish. And then Daniel reveals his deliverance. And, and I love this about Daniel. He stays within himself, right? He had a great victory. He doesn't say, in your face, king, I'm alive. And you tell those 122 officials that I'm coming for them. I made some new friends down here. And we're coming for you. No. Daniel stays within protocol. I mean, I hope you see this. I hope you see this. He stays within protocol. He stays within himself. I think it's moving, personally. Oh, king, live forever. I'm okay. You get the sense that Daniel was hurting more for the king and probably was hurting with himself when he went down into the den. Verse 22, my God sent an angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. I'm not hurt because I was found innocent. In other words, the judge of all the earth, he did right once again. Once again. Final point. Daniel was then delivered from the den of lions and the king, of course, was delighted. Now, I want you to think with me because this is very, very important. When we think about lions... We should understand the destructive power of lions in the Bible is a metaphor for the chaos 
and the unruliness and the lawlessness of the powers of evil. You see, because the unruly nature of lions is why the evil one is described as what? A roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Evil will not be ruled. Evil is lawless. It will not be controlled. Evil and evil people, they will not be told what to do and they will not be told what not to do. So when you read this story and you think about our unruly world and then you read um, Isaiah chapter 11 and the promise to come is what? The lion will lay down with the lamb. That is a hint of everything that God will ultimately accomplish. And so here in chapter 6, Daniel's deliverance is a sign. It is a picture of the promised kingdom. Because in the future kingdom, lions who usually only want to kill and destroy and consume and will not be ruled, now they are found in the morning with Daniel, unable to do what they do best, kill. What happened? What happened? Well, on one level, we know the angel came and shut the mouths of the lions. We understand that. But there's more. God, in a moment of crisis, in order to protect and preserve his kingdom, brings the power of the fulfilled kingdom, the kingdom that is coming, the day then when lions will lie down with lambs. God brings that future power into this moment of adversity to save Daniel's life. And to give the world notice, right? Because that's verse 26. To give the world notice that Daniel's God is the living God. Now take this personal. In a moment of crisis, personal crisis, God brings future power to deliver his people and save them. Do you need that power, that future power, this morning? We're told, like the three boys in chapter 4 in the fiery furnace who didn't smell like smoke, Daniel, verse 23, he doesn't have any wounds on him at all. In other words, they were absolutely, completely saved. Almost like evil, for a moment in time, didn't even exist. Just like it will be for all of eternity. When God's kingdom comes in its fullness, which is the other side of the story, right? Because in Daniel's deliverance, there was also a judgment on Daniel's colleagues, just like it will be for everyone at the end of the age outside of Jesus. And you'll notice that the judgment falls on those who accuse Daniel, but also what? Their wives and their children as well. What's going on there? Well, they're judged not by the law of God, Not by any Jewish law, but that was actually a law that came out of their own minds. This was a Persian law. Herodias, the historian, tells us this. However, here's the picture that you need to have. The punishment they received is the punishment which is going to fall on everyone who has ever opposed the kingdom of God, who's ever ignored the kingdom of God, who has ever fought against the kingdom of God, just like these 122 officials. And on that day of judgment, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, it will be so horrible that people will call on the mountains to fall on them and crush them rather than to face 
the judgment of God. Now think of that. The only thing that I could come up with this week is I thought about 9-11 and the people in the tower, some 150 plus floors up, and they had the raging fire on one side. If they went that way, they were going to die or they could just jump out the window and if they went that way, they were going to die. Death was everywhere. I don't want God's judgment so mountain just fall on me so we can end this. And you see, loved ones, this is why this story matters. And this is much more than a kitty story. And this is not a t-shirt story. You know, we will pray, just try and stop us. But don't do that to these stories. There is, there is no deliverance ever, ever without destruction. It's all through the Bible. God looks at the world in the age of Noah and decides he's going to punishment. But he delivers Noah's family and he destroys everyone else. In Moses, Moses is delivered in that little bassinet from the water. But Pharaoh's soldiers and Pharaoh, they will not be destroyed. Or excuse me, they will be destroyed in the water. The same is true of Jesus. The destruction of his life for our sins. The destruction of his life for the deliverance of his people. Blood for blood. What is kingdom power? Kingdom power is deliverance, but it is also destruction. Destruction. Now, if the story ended right there, it would be a little sad, but it doesn't. The closing verses, once again, a pagan king writes a letter to the world about Daniel's God. Verse 26a, Daniel's God reigns. Verse 26b, Daniel's God lives. Verse 27, Daniel, God, God rescues. It's good, right? This is who God is. This is who God is. He turned the whole thing around. And loved ones, as you think about this, God changed again the mind of a pagan king. So when you think about that, and if you or I ever think that God is no longer able or willing to do these kinds of transformations in the life of a world ruler, And we only think, well, we just get our own people in, then everything will be fine. Do we not do a disservice to God? Right? Who can question any of God's word? And as you think about that, are you praying for women and men around the world who lead us? And if, and is the God who transformed Paul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle, If God was able to do that, is he not able to transform, for example, the tyrant ruler of North Korea? The answer to that question has to be yes. It has to be yes. Some of you, you have parents who remain unconverted. You have kids, sisters, brothers, uncles, aunts, friends, unconverted. Is God not able to save them? Of course he is. But, but you would say, well, we've been praying for so long. And? And? Don't make God into the kind of God who only fixes feelings and fixes our life. He is so much more. He is so much more. In fact, Our prayers 
our prayers will really reveal how much of God we know. There is a higher throne. Stop this the good old days are never coming back stuff. Stop looking with dread and fear, fear at the future. Stop it. You do not know. You do not know. But this is what we do know. There is a higher throne, says the hymn writer, than all this world has known. Where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. Before the sun will stand, made faultless through the Lamb. There is a higher throne. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Father, this is great news. This is great news because it stops us from turning inward and casting our gaze on ourself to gazing upward and looking at the magnificent glory and power of you and your Son and the Holy Spirit three in one. Father, if our prayer lives need to be revived and refined, then please, God, for Jesus' sake and for the glory of your name, do this. And God, as we think about our world, especially because we're so human, on a cold, wintry day like this, the snow is falling. We're all a little tired. We're all a little weary. May our souls come alive in our prayer closet tonight. And may we have big thoughts about you and pray grand prayers about you. And may we think of the world and world leaders beyond just our own existence and the things that we need to live. May the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all who believe, both this morning and every day until Jesus calls us home or until Jesus returns. Amen.